Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. This podcast is for entertainment purposes only and does not replace your own financial, tax, legal, or financial product advice. Hello, everyone. Welcome to My Millennial Money. And it is Super September. So, every episode in the month of September is on superannuation. Now, I'm going to introduce Brian Parker. Brian, thanks for coming back to the podcast. Good to be with you. And John? Welcome. Thanks, John. Pleasure to be here. Glad you could make it. Thanks, John. Cheers. Now, today's episode, it is, you know, I've kind of penned it Ask an Economist. So, we've got a heap of your questions and we're going to uh, ask Brian. Brian is the chief economist at SunSuper, our show partner, and we can't do this podcast without SunSuper. So, thank you to SunSuper for letting Brian take a cruise up to the sunny, sunny coast. So Great to help out. I do need to get one thing in though before we start. Oh, please. Yes, I do. Oh, yes, I you know, do. Because otherwise I'll get into awful trouble. And I had an email this morning. <laughs> Everything uh, we talk about today, this is general advice only, doesn't take into account your personal circumstances. So, uh, you know, we recommend getting personal advice if you want to act on anything you've heard this morning. Um, but also if you want to find out anything about SunSuper, our website, sunsuper.com.au, or you can give us a call, 13 11 84. Love it. Thank you. All rehearsed. So, Brian, since we last had you on the podcast, I think it was around April, maybe a bit before because we were still in the old studio, uh, and when we had you on, the government actually hadn't even rolled out their first tranche of stimulus. Correct. And just for those uh, listening, we're actually recording this on the 27th of August, so it could be a month before this is up, so if... You know, something's changed or if Trump got impeached or something weird's happened, we don't know that yet. So, that's just a disclaimer as well. Uh, So, what's the current, I guess, state of play in a nutshell with um, all things the economy and COVID? Look, I think it's fair to say we're still in the midst of what is the worst global recession and Australian recession in any of our lifetimes. Um, This is absolutely dire. I mean, those of you old enough to remember um, the treasurer when Paul Keating was treasurer might remember that he uttered a famous phrase that, you know, that in the early 90s, we had the recession we had to have. And he really got a hammering over that. Why did Um, we have to have it? Well, back in the late 80s, when the economy was kind of overheating, we had higher inflation, we had pressures on our balance of payments, and there's a whole range of issues that, and that resulted in the Reserve Bank jacking up interest rates a lot, uh, and it basically killed off the economy. Um, But in a sense, um, in order to bring the economy, in order to bring inflation down, they ended up triggering a recession. So he was trying to basically say, in order to bring things back under control, we need to go through this economic pain. Now, I think it's debatable whether we really needed to have one, but the difference this time is this really is in many ways the recession we had to have because um, in order to bring this infection under control, you either moved really, really early in the case of, uh, if I look at what Vietnam did, Taiwan did, for example, where they acted really, really early and they've been actually man- managed to bring their inf- inf- infection rates under control with not a lot of economic damage. If you didn't do that, the price you had to pay to bring the infection under control was to really lock down large sections of your economy. So this really has been, in many ways, the recession we had to have. And we're still in the midst of it. Um, you know, I think even though we started a bit of a recovery in June, July, uh, the lockdowns in Victoria um, and setbacks all around the world have just shown how vulnerable we still are to a resurgence in this infection. Uh, even if governments don't lock things down, people tend to vote with their feet, i.e. they vote not to move them. Mm. Um, you know, we, you saw that in Victoria, that sort of people's mobility started to come off. So some of the data you get from Google and Apple about people moving around and asking for directions on their phones, they were already coming off even before the lockdowns were put in place. So, look, we're in the midst of a really dire recession. We've started to turn the corner, but, you know, we're going to get 
setbacks along the way, including setbacks such as we've seen in Victoria. So, look, this is still a really dire situation, make no mistake. And it's uh, it's just so important to step back because the GFC looked like a kid's birthday party compared to what's happening now because I think there was about, in Australia, around $50 billion of government stimulus. Like, we all got our $1,000 and I spent half of it on jeans and whatever. At least you spent it. Yeah, That's exactly. what they wanted you to do. Exactly, That's right. exactly. That's the thing. Um, but, you know, we could be looking down the barrel 250 to $300 million. Billion. Billion, sorry. Billion. Yeah. Yeah. Look, absolutely. This is this is a big deal. Uh, make no mistake. This is um, the kind of environment where if you are going to force the economy to lock down to deal with an infection, so if the government deliberately engineers a recession, um, it's the government's responsibility to step up and make sure that you provide households and businesses with the kind of support that you can actually ride this through. Um, and that's really what governments around the world have tried to do. You, you can argue whether they've all, whether everyone's done enough. And personally, I think governments have more to do, uh, both here in Australia and globally. But certainly the size of the stimulus has been massive and it has actually helped a lot. It has supported a lot of people through what has been a really dire set of circumstances. Mm, so I, I remember distinctly, Glenn, back in that old uh, office of yours when we interviewed you, Brian, that... Your, your sentiment was, well, this how bad this is going to get really depends on how well the government react to it and, and what sort of stimulus they provide. Uh, what, what's your assessment of that today? Look, I think um, this, the size hasn't been quite big enough. I think they should have done more. They were a bit too slow to get cash flowing. So, for example, with JobKeeper, um, the steps they put in place to say, all right, um, to maintain a relationship with your employer. So uh, the employer had to basically pay people in advance and then get reimbursed from the tax office. And that could be a long bloody six weeks. Well, it could be. And also the idea that, well, what if you didn't have the cash reserves or cash flow to pay people up front? Well, then the idea was go and talk to your bank and actually get some funding, um, uh, get the bank to lend you the money, and then uh, you'll get reimbursed from the tax office. Now, that took time, um, and that was a bit complicated. Yes, money has flowed, and you've got a whole bunch of people out there being supported by this. I think they probably could have actually made the cash flow a bit faster, to be honest, um, but I won't look a gift horse in the mouth. The money has flowed and it has supported a lot of people. And as much as some of the some people complain, uh, oh, but you, in some cases you're paying people more than they were earning before, I don't have a problem with that because right now you need to give people money um, to support them through this. So if, if people get more than they were earning before – that all helps support the economy. So and they're likely to spend it anyway. They're going to spend it. Or at out. the very least, um, they're going to do one of two things. Firstly, they're going to spend it. Secondly, even if they don't spend it, they're going to get their own personal balance sheet back into better shape than it otherwise would be, and you've mm. seen a bit of that. Mm. So, for example, when you look at figures from the Reserve Bank about credit outstanding, and there's a category called other personal credit, which is basically the fantastic plastic and car loans and personal loans and stuff – that was already shrinking. It's shrinking now at a much faster rate. Mm. Um, it suggests that, yeah, people are out there maintaining a level of spending, but they're also, in some cases, using this to get their balance sheet in a bit of better shape. And I don't have a problem with that either. So there's a lot of headlines out there on a, on a daily level around this and everyone predicting what's going to happen and what's not going to happen. Mm. What's, uh, what, what's your assessment uh, when these stimulus packages end. So what? the cliff that the media <clears throat> is talking about. Yeah, I mean, about. that's the that's the real worry. And the good thing, and I think the government was very, very wise to actually announce that they were extending it and that it wasn't going to reach a cliff at the end of 30 September, um, that they're going to sort of taper this More off. More of a ramp now. <laughs> it's a ramp, absolutely. And look, if the economy continues, if we, if we bring infection rates under control in Victoria and the economy can resume this sort of gentle recovery path, then maybe that ramp will be fine. But I, I think it's really, really important for the government, not just here in Australia, but globally, this is a time when you really want governments to be nimble and be able to respond to changing circumstances so that if they do need to put more money to work or if they do need to extend the ramp, if you want to use that analogy, they need to be prepared to do, to do that. This is not a time to be standing on ceremony and this is not a time to be you know, overly worried about debt and deficits because this is, this is a serious emergency. The damage, if you, if you shut off the stimulus too soon, um, 
or if you taper it off too soon, um, at a time when the labour market is still really, really weak, you could end up doing serious ongoing damage to the economy, to the property market. It, it's could not. It's not going to be pretty. So, I'm confident the government actually is prepared to be a bit nimble about this. Yeah. Um, and let's see what happens during the October budget because I think you'll see more measures announced there. Right. Is there a um, you know, if we do head towards a three hundred billion dollar uh, relief package? And it, if this thing goes on another year, it could go to 400 million. Who knows? Mm. Um, is that still a small debt to GDP? Look, I think it's – in terms of um, the, the overall deficit – uh, if you were just sort of funding those sort of outflows and borrowing money to fund those outflows, it means you do get a big, big budget deficit, absolutely. But in terms of the debt to GDP um, – Like is the government borrowing this type of money from China, like with – Bonds or yeah, it's issuing bonds into the global marketplace. Yeah. And right now, um, governments around the world, but but including here in Australia, the Australian government can basically borrow money um, for longer and for cheaper than at pretty much any time since European settlement. So why don't we just ramp this party up and? build some decent infrastructure. Well, um, I have some sympathy for that view. Yeah. Uh, there, is, there are things we could do. There's a whole bunch of things you could do uh, on, for example, um, in green energy. Mm. Um, there's a whole bunch of things you could do in, a, in, a, in, in other sort of infrastructure um, type yeah. projects. Uh, and this is what the Reserve Bank has been supporting as well. I mean, the Reserve Bank governor has been very, very public about saying, look, this is up to fiscal policy to help drive, the, drive this recovery. And that's really, really smart of him because there's not a hell of a lot more the central bank can do. This is a time when central banks really take a back seat. I mean, once you've reduced interest rates to virtually nothing and you've pumped lots of money into the financial yeah, what system. Else do you do? Exactly. Um, yeah. This is when, and let's say uh, you, you slash interest rates to nothing and you put a lot of liquidity into the banking system, well, that relies on people being able to borrow that money and spend it. Well, if no one's borrowing money and spending it, someone else needs to step up and do the spending. And typically, that's that's government. This is mm. textbook economics. Mm. But textbook economics is something I'm a bit of a fan of, to be honest. And, and just on that, so people might be new to the podcast, new to our world, and they might, because we... we we did get a heap of questions, you know, ask an economist and people were basically wanting to know some share tips and, you know, should I do this? Should I trade that? As an economist, like, what do you do? Oh, what do I do for a living? Yeah. yeah like get up 5am. I get up at 5am and drive to, <laughs> drive to the Central Coast and chat to you guys. Yeah. yeah. No, look, at the end of the day, um, I suppose the, the way I think about economics is that, you know, we think about the way the world works. I'm a macroeconomist, so I think about the way um, the Australian and global economy works in terms of um, – what sort of what is a reasonable rate of economic growth that's achievable in the economy, and what does that mean for um, what sort of jobs growth could conceivably uh, be achieved? Um, what sort of inflation rates are likely over the longer term? What does that mean for interest rates? What does it mean for currencies over the longer term? I don't tend to get caught up in what's going to happen this month or next month. Yeah, because um, you're looking at broad trends. Absolutely. And you don't give a crap if Afterpay shot the lights out in the last 12 months. Not really, no. To the extent that we own shares and Afterpay as part of a very well-diversified portfolio, yeah, we care. But yep. if Afterpay were to collapse in a heap in the next month, um, would that be fatal fine, yeah. to the portfolio? No, not at all. It would yeah. barely be a ripple. Yeah. Um, but basically, um, you know, I, my job is to base – and I suppose another part of my job is to really um, – is really to do with what I would call risk management, is to really identify um, identify risks and identify potential problems that um, fund managers um, and investors need to worry about uh, before they happen. Um, and it's not sort of necessarily forecasting them, it's to try and look at the overall health of the economy and try and identify where there might be risks. And I believe a term that you economists use is the term headwinds. Um, that's one term we might use. So, you know, what what are potential headwinds um, for the growth of the economy? Absolutely. It may be, for example, before the GFC, this idea that we were going into a period where there were too many people uh, taking way too much risk with way too much borrowed money. And that's the that difference. That proved to be a headwind for yeah. the economy. And that's the difference the now. The debt isn't there. Well, we, we're not. We actually went into this crisis. This is why I very much describe it in many ways as the 
recession we had to have because um, this is not a recession that happened by accident. This is not a recession that happened because the world was overheating or there were too many people out there doing dumb things with money um, or that inflation was rising or balance sheets were getting stressed uh, or anything like that. The world actually wasn't in that bad an economic shape going into this. This was very much not a textbook recession. This is a, a recession by design to address a health crisis, not a recession that has evolved and occurred in the traditional way, if you like. So when you look at like GFC was was global and it was affected pretty generally, this is a very different beast and especially phase two because for those listening out of Melbourne, like they're severely affected whereas um, Perth maybe not so much, maybe not Adelaide, to some extent Sydney. How do you see that affecting the next 12 to 24 months in, in places like Melbourne? Oh, look, you know, what it, what it's suggesting is that before the stage three and then stage four lockdowns, Melbourne, like the rest of the country, was going through this period of recovery uh, and then, then they just got brought to a screaming halt. And so, you know, Victoria is about a quarter of the economy um, So, and it's a major manufacturing centre, it's a major distribution centre. So that lockdown in Victoria, yes, Victoria bears the brunt of the economic impact, but it does have flow-on effects to the rest of the country. That said, what we're seeing so far is that the impact on the rest of the country is relatively modest. Uh, now, I'm glad you actually mentioned the date that this is um, this has been recorded up front because so much can change in the space of yeah. a few weeks. Um, but if we can continue to bring infection rates under control, uh, and certainly the latest data uh, that we're seeing out of Victoria suggests you can, you can do that, then we can all continue to go on this recovery path. Yeah, and I think we might actually... Um talk with Jess, our producer, and see if she can bring this forward for everyone so we can get it maybe closer to the start of September just to get it hot off the press. So we sound more accurate. Yeah. yeah. Well, it's just... <laughs> it's always a challenge. It's just <laughs> nice to have fresh information. Yeah, yeah uh, absolutely, yeah. Now, one thing I wanted to talk about is, you know, share markets. Yep. Um, you know, whether you cut it eight ways to Sunday, we're all investors because we've got superannuation. That's right. Now... You know, the US stock exchange, particularly the tech stocks, have just gone into orbit and yeah. markets are doing pretty well. Um, I look at the uh, the all odds index and it's a big V or it's, you know, mm. you know, so markets have recovered well. Yep. But we hear on the news that the economy is up to shat. So yeah. for somebody who's, yeah. um, you know, new to all this, how can you explain the differences between the share market and the economy? Oh, that's a really good question. I get asked that a lot. And there's a, there's a bunch of different ways to answer that. Um, firstly, share markets tend to be more forward-looking than any of us. Um, so just as the share market, you know, crapped out in March before the economy did, um, the share market started to recover in advance of the economy. So what share markets effectively did was saw what was happening with infection rates and said, right, this is going to actually be a dire event yeah, for the world economy. It will happen. It's we'll sell off. Yeah. But then you actually started to see the aggressive policy response. You started to see the central banks and governments around the world step up with support. And so markets then said, well, okay, this is the light at the end of the tunnel mm. so we can enjoy a bit of recovery. That's part of it. The second thing is think about it from an asset allocation point of view as to where do you put your money. Um, so if I'm sitting there in New York or London and I'm running a global portfolio, where's my best opportunity to get a return? Um, or And the reality is interest rates uh, are so low. The yields available on government bonds are so low and in some cases negative. Where the hell else are you going to put your money? Yeah. And so for a lot of investors out there, shares became attractive or remained attractive by virtue of the fact that there was the only game in town because where the hell else was I going to get any kind of income or any mm. kind of return? Is there a risk that this hunt for yield can be overinflating uh, equity markets? There is a risk, absolutely. Um, and uh, I, I'm not going to turn around and say that share markets in an absolute sense look screamingly cheap. Um, they might have done in March. Mm. Um, they've actually recovered quite solidly. And there are pockets of the share market that by any traditional measure do look overvalued. And you mentioned tech stocks. Um, look at the United States. If you stripped out those big five or six tech names, um, so your Microsofts, Facebooks, Amazons, um, alphabets, Ukes. you know. Um, if you strip them out, the rest of the market has done really stuff all this yeah. year. 
And so it's been, yeah, the, our view of how the share market has performed has been very much distorted by a relatively small number of stocks. Those big six tech names, uh, if I look at how they're valued, I mean, th- those stocks are currently worth about 20% of the US stock market. Hmm. Um, they're worth about 13 14% of the global stock market. And at some they're worth, stage... They're actually worth... They are worth very nearly as much as the entire emerging markets universe, China, yeah. India, Brazil, Eastern Europe, etc. They, they're very, very fully priced. And for those listening, you've got more of a chance of being a millionaire than Jeff Vidos does. <laughs> Think about it. <laughs> Just depends on your direction. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> exactly right. But, look, um, I think, look, and again, the other thing with, with stocks is that the stock market is not necessarily the economy as well. Uh, because know, we still go to Woolworths. We still buy. Well, that's true. I mean, yes, the companies that we, we buy through are, ah, yes, absolutely represented in the stock market. But, you know, there is, there, it's not always the case that the stock market is the economy. Uh, the United States is a classic example that the US stock market doesn't – it's very much an indicator of global economic conditions – not just US conditions. It's got a whole bunch of global companies on it. And here in Australia, you know, we've got a stock market that's dominated by, you know, historically by banks and miners. Mm. Now, they are disproportionately represented in the stock market than they are in the economy. And so it's important to make that distinction, I think, as well. Yeah, so basically what you're saying, for the average punter, you can't look at the economy and say good, bad or ugly and – make that relative to your share investment or your property investment? Not necessarily, no. Um, it's, it's yeah, it, there are, there's lots more nuances to it than that, than, the, than just that. I'm not saying the economy doesn't matter because yeah. ultimately the economy produces earnings and it's really earnings over time that matter for corporate profits and therefore for the price of companies. But, you know, especially in the short term, uh, to look at the economy and to make judgments about the stock market and vice versa, um, it's the world is a lot more complicated than that. There's an old adage that um, the stock market has predicted nine of the last five recessions, for example, right? Um, so just because the stock market craps out, does that mean the economy automatically follows? Yeah. Well, sometimes it does, but not always. It just when you're talking about the tech stocks, um, a couple of years ago, uh, Apple actually were holding more cash than the US government. Like mm. it was some weird stat like that. Like they're just huge. Yeah, I mean these are huge global behemoths. They're 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 amazing companies, and um, their dominance um, and the dominance of technology in general. Um, this was a trend that existed before COVID, and COVID has to some extent accelerated that trend. Um, so you know, Zoom meetings. Um, believe it or not, Zoom meetings were a thing before COVID. Yeah, that's um, right. Zoom was already on the up and yeah. up before yeah. the COVID, but but obviously. Um, you know, COVID has given Zoom another leg up. Yeah, hugely. totally. So let's answer some questions uh, from the Facebook group. Uh, and here's a good one. Maria Henriquez, if I can pronounce your name correct. Um, actually, that's I've missed out a big chunk of your middle name, but I'm sorry. I've just, my Spanish is not great. Uh, what's the outlook of unemployment in Australia? And how long before we can expect the unemployment rate to return to pre pandemic times oh it's a really good question and it's it's if this was a let me let me if this was a traditional recession then i would say this could could be quite some time and the thing i really worry about is that historically recessions tend to disproportionately affect young people um, so anyone um, coming out of school or university entering the job market for the first time now is a terrible time to be doing that um, just as if you look back to the early 1990s of people who graduated from school and from university then had a terrible time of it for some years. Um, mm. that Even though in the economy began to recover, um, it took a, quite a while for the unemployment rate to return to something vaguely normal. Now, this time around- And normal, uh, full employment's basically 5 or 6% unemployment Well, that's the thing, you know, it's very, very hard. It, full employment or what we economists would call a natural rate of unemployment, um, it's a very um, nebulous beast. It's the sort of thing that, how do you know when you get there? Well, you'll- you, you'll know you've gotten there when you arrive because you'll get a whole bunch of other signals. So in other words, um, if you get to the point where the unemployment rate is very, very low and wages start to accelerate, you could probably say, ah, well, we're probably running out of labour because the price of labour is going up at a faster rate. Um, We are some way away from that. We were some way away from that before COVID Mm. um, and I think it's going to take some time. 
With one caveat, though, if I was going to be optimistic about this, the fact that um, the magnitude of the stimulus that's been put in place by governments and the fact that, you know, there are going to be significant parts of the economy that can um, reopen relatively quickly and bring people back on stream, back to the work, the paid workforce relatively quickly, um, that's, that's a positive But the sad reality is that there are a range of industries out there. Airlines are an obvious case. Um, Parts of retail, parts of hospitality. I mean, at the time where the world is a different, the world will be different, and it's going to be an ongoing challenge. Some of those jobs and some of those businesses sadly may not return, and that tells you that you know the the difficult response to the question is that um, it could be several years at least before we see unemployment fall something that you could call close to full employment or a natural rate of unemployment. But is that a big indicator in the sense that, well, the data that I've read anyway, whether it's right or not, I don't know, but uh, a lot of the unemployment through COVID is that 18 to 22 age group. Um, Is that a a reflection on the whole economy? Um, It's not necessarily a reflection on the whole economy. So there are parts of the economy that that have continued to do really well through this. So, you know, technology type companies, um, financial services companies um, have continued to provide financial services. Um, um, We've talked with some mortgage brokers and they're the busiest they've been in years. Well, that's right. And some of the the sort of grocery wholesalers, for example, also doing very, very well. you know, people in, in supermarkets, uh, people are still out shopping for food. Uh, mm. So there's been a bunch of industries that have actually had relatively little effect or have actually been boosted by this. And it's just so unique because, you know, we talk about global uh, recessions and whatnot. Like the GFC, it was technically a blip because, and I think I said this last time, the G, the height of the GST, uh, the whatever it is, GFC, the yeah. GFC, we could still go out for lunch together. Yeah. Well, we that's could, right, exactly. Those cafes yeah. were busier. We still go on our normal life because yeah. no I don't mask. care if Lehman Brothers fell over. I'm yeah. still getting my well, that's pay the thing. this week. And there's a whole bunch of businesses and a whole bunch of assets out there that even during a recession, they might be affected, but but people still shop, people still fly, people yeah. still take holidays. This is literally a recession where by design and by necessity, industries have have been shut down or yeah. virtually entirely shut down. It's a really different, it's a very unique experience in that sense. Mm. But you're right, uh, this, this is really, really different. Um, I just think that it's going to take some time before we, in the absence of a vaccine that's widely available, and who knows when that's going to be, it's going to, there's going to be a whole bunch of industries that will not normalise, that won't get back to where we were before. Yeah. Mm. Question: As a you know, lick your finger, put your wet finger, see which way the wind's blowing. Would you say we're probably on track as a recovery when the planes start again? Internationally uh, that's a really good question. Um, and so much of it depends. I don't think international travel opens up uh, all at once. Um, I, I'm not the only one that's saying this. I think it's going to be that's going to be a very gradual. Uh, well, that talk of the um, Kiwi Aussie bubble yeah. that was for 10 minutes, that's not, it won't happen well, that, now, will it? Look, I think it'll that could still happen, but it does rely on bringing infection rates under control and keeping them under control. Mm-hmm. Um, I think you can. Do something like that, but it, the idea that it would happen this year—I I don't think anyone's calling for that. At the yeah, moment. and I was going to say before, at the time of recording, I think two days ago, Qantas came out again yeah. and said we're doing a whole heap of more layoffs, Couple and I think they're burning forty million dollars a day. Well, exactly right, and and this is going to take a long. And I think. And again, other people have said this too. There will be some airlines uh, globally that won't survive this. Mm. Um, the air travel will, will look different. In the, in the absence of a vaccine, I don't know how you normalise air travel. Short haul is relatively easier. Um, some of the experts on this say that because of the way air conditioning systems work on planes, that the risk of COVID transmission is relatively low. Now, um, I, I, whether that fact and widespread mask wearing is enough to get travel back to something closer to normal, mm. I frankly don't know, um, and I would doubt it. Um, and even if you do open it up, how many people really want to travel? Um, discount airfares uh, are, are going to – it'll be a long time, I think, before the sort of discounted international airfares we saw pre-COVID come back. And, and I think it's it's been pretty well publicised that – uh, Virgin Mark II might not even be an international carrier to start with. I think they've made that fairly clear from yeah. memory that they're just going to stick to their domestic knitting for the time yeah. being is yeah. that's the initial plan. Because it's just so – your heart goes out for the tourism industry because even if you look at it – so you you go and sit on your plane before mm. you take off. You've got people loading luggage. Yes. You've got people 
loading fuel. Yep. You've got ground staff, um, you know, providing the catering on site and then off-site down the road at Mascot, you've got a warehouse that's doing all the catering. Mm. Like, it is huge. Yeah, the flow-on effects are massive. Um, and, and again, one of the other things that might actually provide a bit more of a cushion here is that for all those industries out there where people have continued to work and continue to get paid, the percentage of those people who would normally take an overseas holiday are not going to be either willing to or be allowed to do that. And so how much of – you get that sort of expenditure switching where instead of – buying an imported service, you buy a domestic sort. So domestic holidays get more of a boost mm-hmm. because overseas travellers stay at home. Um, that's that's a potential good news story. Yeah. But then again, all of that relies on success at infection control and reopening borders. I'll move to another question. And I've actually had this flag to do with you as its own podcast topic because I'm just so curious. And is now a time, Letitia asks the pros and cons of a UBI or universal basic income is now the time to actually go, this is a once in a hundred year structural opportunity. Do we put that on the table? What are the pros and cons generally? And what is a UBI for those? Yeah. A UBI is this idea that, that they're due to, um, as I understand it, the, uh, the idea of a UBI perhaps simply is this idea that, um, because of technological progress and innovation, um, artificial intelligence, that increasingly a whole bunch of jobs uh, will simply disappear, that human beings will not do these jobs. Um, And we will have progressed so far in terms of technology that there'll be a bunch of people out there that simply will not find work. And so um, that they don't have the skills, they don't have – they just won't be able to find work. And so um, you need uh, to tax those people who are remaining in work and use that to fund a base level of income. So everyone gets 25 grand or whatever. Everyone gets basically a a basic level of income um, uh, which allows people to live and get on with their lives. Um, Now – to me, uh, th- it has some intuitive appeal, but I would say a few things. One is that I don't think we're at that stage yet. I don't think that the uh, – I, f- I think back through history, um, there were arguments about, well, how do we accommodate all the people that move on from agriculture and into the cities because agriculture has become far more mechanised and we don't need as many farm workers. Well, they ended up working in manufacturing. Oh, but what do we do when we automate manufacturing? What happens to those workers? Um, well, services industries took over. Um, what about um, even in banking and financial services? Sorry, with the with the uh, with the rise of the automatic teller, um, how many people are going to be employed by banks? The answer, plenty. Um, you find other things to do. Um, so consequently, I, I, I think we're still at a stage in history where. Um, uh, we will find things for people to do without relying on a universal basic income. But with one other caveat, we need to be boosting, we need to be making sure that our education system prepares people for what is going to be a rapidly evolving global economy. Um, you know, Thomas Friedman in the New York Times, among others, talks about um, uh, lifelong learning and that um, people leaving school and university today, um, the, the big, big thing you get out of university, in my view, is you learn how to learn, mm. right? Um, and that's going to be crucial because it means that people may have to adapt and retrain perhaps several times over their career. Um, as long as we set up the education system in such a way that people can do that, I don't think we need to go down the UBI route yet. The other yeah. thing, just quickly, yeah. is this idea of incentives is that, um, well, what about the people who have no incentive to work if they're going to be just given this basic income? There was a recent study done in Finland, I think, where they trialled this, where what they found is that most people kept working. Yeah. Well, they found something to do because as much as it sounds really intuitively appealing, uh, the idea of being paid to just um, sit in your ass and do nothing, yeah. uh, the novelty wears off really quick. Yeah, and I, I personally, and I'm not an economist, I'm not, anything i'm just a bogan with a microphone right now (laughs) but we talked like with the airline industry with the flow on so you've got Mm. someone who cooks um steak for my business class you know flight that's going up tomorrow or whatever and because you get steak and all that crap so Mm. you know some people might not even think that that's in the airline industry so you've got the chefs off site Mm -hmm. then you've got the people that producing the packaging for the so the flow on right yep I personally think it's worth a discussion 
So we want to get serious with uh, renewables in Australia. Mm-hmm. Well, a fair chunk of Australia does. And coal is a big thing in Australia and it's a big industry. So if tomorrow, I guess the hardcore, because life's a spectrum, so the hardcore purists that are completely green this end, they would want tomorrow coal power power stations to be turned off. Mm. Okay. That practically can't happen. But if we did move to a green economy, there would be flow on jobs from mining. So this company down the road at Chidaway, they make little rubber seals that go in tractors and all this stuff, right? Mm. So if you are going to turn the tap off on this mining industry that we've built Australia with over the last however long, is there a discussion to have a UBI if you're affected from that industry and you've got a UBI of 25 grand for the next 25 years or whatever comes first, a new job or age? Like just, I don't know, there's got to be something if we want to be serious about moving to a green economy. Yeah. Because there is that much. And it's like, and I kind of get a bit Ted talky ranty here, but just because you're, uh, make little rubber parts for a a truck that's used in the coal industry and you've made a really good living, you're not inherently an evil person who hates the environment. No, exactly. And that's a, that's a really good question. And, a, and I'd say a few things about that. Um, yeah, I don't think there was a question there. <laughs> no, no, if there is a question there. I'm sure there is. Or at least I, I've got an answer. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but the idea that um, th- this is – let's distinguish. Um, green tech is actually um, quite – Technology in general, including green tech, is actually fairly mining intensive. You think about the the technology that's in this room running this podcast. Uh, um, there's a whole bunch of uh, metals that go into the equipment here, um, there, and that'll continue. Um, there's a whole bunch of um, stuff that we mine mine out of the ground that actually goes into building technology. Absolutely, mm. and, and green buildings. <laughs> well, that's true, and yeah. and even even coal. Uh, let's distinguish between high-quality coking coal that's used in steel, for example, steel that might be used to make windmill blades, mm. uh, to use a, 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 an obvious example. Um, you know, we are many years away from um, uh, the steel industry being able to use another source of heat to produce steel from iron ore. Mm. There's some research going on to using using hydrogen as a potential alternative, but it's potentially years away. So we're still going to need a hell of a lot of coking coal to make make steel, for example. Mm. Um Thermal coal, um, I think, is, is is going to be in long-term structural decline as a source of electricity globally. Mm. The economics is now increasingly leaning towards wind and solar. And when you combine that with the progress we're seeing in battery storage, the long-term trend is really clear. And it doesn't really matter in, in a sense – um, it may not really matter about the political environment because the long-term economics are pretty clear. There's one caveat. There's still some discussion about do we have um, the battery storage? Does that have enough enough oomph to it to actually do the base load? To do the yeah. So you oh. need the power to be dispatchable. So yeah. can you store power long enough to meet those times when wind and solar aren't? aren't Mm. aren't available to deliver. So that's why the big debate about, well, do you still need some natural gas capability um, that you can switch on and off fast um, to mitigate um, any sort of stoppages from wind and solar? And again, it's not my absolute area of expertise, but I'm, but I'm, my basic point is the long-term trend is very, very clear. It's away from thermal coal um, and it's towards renewables. Mm-hmm. Um, but this does not mean the end of mining. Is that, and, and in terms of people working in mining thermal coal today, can those people be um, retrained or can their um, expertise be redirected to working in other parts of the mining industry? Yeah, and, Maybe, and yeah. I guess my comment is, is like – Oh, the other thing, just quickly. Yeah. Mining in Australia is a very capital-intensive business. Yeah. Okay, so the number of uh, – even though, yes, there's quite a few people employed in, 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 in thermal coal mining, um, it's very capital-intensive and relative to the – and there's a whole bunch of other people employed in mining that don't do thermal coal. Yeah. Yeah, and I just want to say if you're going to turn the tap off a complete industry, we as a society need to help the mums and dads who are doing the ancillary stuff. Yeah. That's, uh, that's absolutely saying. crucial. I think that – and that's where um, you need to make sure you have the support mechanisms in place uh, to allow people um, – to retrain if required or to make sure there's enough um, resources or there's enough other things happening in the economy Mm. that people can move around and people actually can change um, either change industries or move to a different part of, say, the mining industry, to use an example. And I think, 
like COVID has probably taught a lot of people that as educators and parents, we need to be telling the next generation that, well, you need to be diversified in your thinking as to what role you might play, what occupation you might go into and have exactly. a plan B, plan C up your sleeve, whether it be technology or uh, recession or economy base that changes that for you, you, you know that you're probably not going That's to be exactly in the same That's exactly right. And, and the one uh, we talked about lifelong learning, there was a, a management guru, um, Charles Handy, in the 1970s, I think, who wrote, he was in his books on um, the future of, of the economy and corporate life, if you like, he talks about people acquiring a portfolio of skills, mm. you know, acquire a portfolio of skills that you can allocate as required. Yeah. So it's it's learning how to learn, learning how to do a whole bunch of different things so that any job you go into or any entity you work in, you 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 may, I remember getting, one piece of advice I was given early in my career where um, uh, one of my early bosses who said to me, you know how I've survived long enough in, in corporate life? I said, how? He said, I've made myself useful. Mm-hmm. And I thought that was a really trivial thing to say. But he said, well, no, you come into a job and you make yourself useful and you, and you become good at a particular job and someone looks down and goes, oh, you're useful. Come and be useful over here. Yeah, I'll pay you more. And you end up acquiring skills the more useful you yeah. can prove yourself to be. I, I did a, an episode yesterday uh, with some podcast guests. John wasn't here. Um, oh, did I tell you? You're fired. Um, you didn't get invited. You're just not no. useful anymore. Yeah. No. Um, and we were talking about interns. And it's like, if you're going to be an intern, rock up. Don't be pain in the ass and stand out to be useful. <laughs> like mm. that was the. Yeah. I think that's very. Make yourself useful and yeah. don't be a dickhead. Yeah. Um, Goes a long way. Rule, rule to live people. by, really. Yeah. You know. Now, there's a heap of questions. Nathan Taylor's asked about interest rates. Maddie Ashby has asked about the impact on inflation. So, and there's a heap of questions. Those two are related. So we're going to. And that's what I mean. I think. Like, yeah. Yeah. If we can just start, I think it's probably good to understand inflation. And I'm genuinely going to ask you this, so just to make sure I understand. Mm. But there's a risk when inflation is really low that I don't want to spend money to invest because it's not going to be worth anything more in the future. So why bother? Well, it's this idea that um, if inflation's really, really low, if it gets to be too low such that people start to expect prices are falling – People say, "Well, I'm not going to spend today because it'll be cheaper next week or next month." Or yes, whatever. that's that's the whole more uh, that's way of the sort of def- it, yeah. what they call a deflationary spiral, spiral, yep. which is really, in a way, what Japan got itself into during the '90s and noughties. This idea that and and that's very very hard to get out of once it takes hold. Um, you've really that's a time when governments really need to step in and spend lots and lots of money. Japan was a basket case for 20 years, wasn't it? Yeah, but it's important to bear in mind, this is where I think some of the economic commentary and some of the data that we look at can be a little bit simplistic. We, we look at GDP growth, whereas I tend to think, well, if you look at Japan, um, if you ever you know, go to Tokyo and, and, and if you said to, uh, if you arrive in Tokyo and I said to you, yeah, Jap- the Japanese economy is a complete basket case. You go, what? You go, well, <laughs> really, there's a lot of people out there around here looking really busy. It seems to be a very um, uh, successful, affluent, clean, safe uh, place to live. To me, that would suggest to me the, an economy that's probably got more going for it than a superficial look at just GDP growth would tell you. The unemployment rate is very, very low. They've got actually very, very bad dem- demographics. So their population growth, their w- the labour force growth is virtually nothing. Um, so their economy hasn't grown at a very fast rate. But in terms of GDP per head, uh, in terms of living standards, um, it's actually held up pretty well. It's a very affluent place to live is what I'm saying. Yeah, so that's a comment, I guess, as an economist. It's like, okay, that's what it says on paper – Let's have a look on the ground and actually see what's actually happening. Yeah, an economy is more than just accounting. Economics yeah. is not just accounting. Yeah, um, economics is about um, yes, it's about costs and benefits and and but more broadly broadly measured, um, is it economics should be about not just the what about the, these like. Um, do you guys look at like the well-being indicators and all that? There's a whole bunch Crap. of work done on that. It's very, very hard to do. Yeah. But, you know, increasingly um, uh, now in my job, I don't look closely at it. But at the end of the day, economics is a, is very interested in that because the economy is designed to serve the people who make it up. Mm. The pe- People don't serve the economy. The economy should be designed to serve mm. people. And it just speaks view. to – not just seeing one statistic and taking it for gospel, doesn't exactly. it? Just looking so, at okay, so if we go back to the inflation, what's a good inflation rate that encourages investment and also encourages 
other oh, that's a really good stuff. It's, it's a really, really good question. You, you need to make sure that inflation is not so high that it distorts things, where people spend their time trying to, you know, uh, people tend to people basically look for investments that will protect them against inflation rather than necessarily be productive. You need enough inflation so that you don't run the risk of these sort of deflationary spiral episodes, but not so much that it becomes distortionary. The textbooks would tell you, and probably policymakers globally over the last several decades have probably come to the view that that figure has a two in front of it. In Australia, we thought the two was probably too low, and so the central bank in Australia decided to go for two to three percent as a as a range. Um, I think that's, that's that's proved to be perfectly reasonable. If anything, we haven't actually hit the target for several no. years. Mm. Um, so, the outlook for inflation, the outlook for rates, right now in the midst of a very very deep recession, at a time when we went into this uh, with wages barely growing above inflation, with very, very weak wages growth. But that's been the case for a long time in Australia. A, yeah, it has been the case for some years. Um, now we have a situation where we have so much spare capacity in the labour market, so many people either unemployed or and underemployed, that it's very hard to see wages growth accelerating dramatically in the next few years. If anything, wages are likely to slow further. Mm. Now, wages are a big part of business costs and hence a big input into price. So if wages aren't growing at anything like a reasonable pace, if your labour costs aren't rising significantly, it means you probably don't get a lot of pressure up, upward pressure on prices. So to me, inflation is likely to be very, very low in Australia for some years. And that, if that's the case, the Reserve Bank um, can keep interest rates very, very low for several yeah. years at least. And they've made that clear that that's, that's their intention at this point. Because I was always um, told Parker, the Parker family mortgage remains variable. Put it that yeah, way. Yeah, <laughs> I'm told uh, un, or under the impression that uh, unemployment was directly related to interest rates. So if unemployment was on the down, then interest rates may, maybe need to go up or vice versa. What, what's your view on? Yeah, historically that's been a, a fairly reliable relationship that um, you've seen um, over the longer term that whenever un- the unemployment rate is falling, the Reserve Bank looks at that and says, well, the economy is clearly doing pretty well. Mm. It's probably growing faster than its long-run potential, mm. so we maybe need to lean against that a little bit by raising rates, and it works in reverse. So yep. unemployment's rising, the economy is clearly a bit sluggish, we'll give it a bit of help. Um but what happened was um, in the years leading up to the GFs, sorry, leading up to COVID, we actually saw the Reserve Bank nudge rates a bit lower, mm. even though unemployment wasn't rising. Yes. And a big part of the reason was they looked at their inflation target and looked at what was happening to wages and said, hang on a minute, um, the, the sort of relationship, if you like, between the level of unemployment and wages seems to be changing. We're not getting the kind of wages growth that households actually need, and we're not getting the kind of wages growth that we need if we're going to hit our inflation target. Um, so they, they cut interest rates. Well, now we've got COVID. Uh, I can't see the Reserve Bank raising interest rates anytime for the next several years. That's my personal view. Do you and think, think we go lower again? I don't think so. I think the reserve would be un- unlikely to do that. Uh, you never say never, and they certainly have. They, you know, central bankers never absolutely rule anything out. Yeah. Um, but the governor's made it fairly clear that he sees a quarter of a percent as pretty much the floor. Mm. That he doesn't see the need or or see negative interest rates as terribly desirable. And frankly, I, I kind of agree with him. Yeah, because the UK had it for a while. I don't know what. Very very there. low interest rates. Everyone's reduced rates to either negative or ridiculously low. The the Reserve Bank has gone down the same path as the Federal Reserve. The Federal Reserve in the US basically said they don't think negative interest rates are a good idea. Mm. Um, I think it creates a whole bunch of distortions, and it's a very hard to get your head around it a bit yeah. minimum um and um the, to me if you want to do if you need policy makers to do more to get us out of this it's not up to the central bank it should be governments yeah mm. we're going to take a quick break and we'll be back right after this if you're after personal financial advice don't get it from a podcast if you would like help based on your own personal situation head over to sortyourmoneyout.com click get help and we'd be happy to introduce you to one of our trusted advisors we also have a panel of trusted mortgage brokers we can connect you with to get you into your first home an investment property purchase or to review your current loan if you don't have a broker our panel of advisors mortgage brokers and accountants work with clients all over australia so they can connect with you wherever you are that's sortyourmoneyout.com and click get help Okay, I want to jump over the Pacific and, you know, we just finished on the inflation thing. I've got some friends who are Argentinian and he's got a family in Argentina. His phone bill over the last 12 months went up over 100%. 
Mm-hmm. So if you think inflation can be a problem, well, go to Argentina and see how hyperinflation uh, really works. So a lot of pain there. Mm-hmm. So going up further north, uh, Jordan asks the global economy in relation to China versus the US. And there was another question there about the trade war. Um, I guess firstly, just from uh, your own personal views, uh, Trump probably will stay in. I don't know. Um, personally, um, I, I hope he doesn't yeah. um, because I I do like the idea of um, we desperately need – the world faces a whole bunch of problems right now and we desperately need political grown-ups in charge. Mm. Um, it's fairly clear in the United States that we don't have the grown-ups in charge, that the um, response to COVID has been kind of ramshackle to say the least. Um, even the economic policy response, which started off pretty well, um, has tapered off way too soon. Um, they haven't been able to get their act together and put and extend the kind of support measures that they needed to extend. So um, we desperately need um, politicians in the US to step up and help us solve global and problems. And I, I mean, how can you be a leader and undermine your team publicly? Like well, the Fauci true. thing, it's just Exactly. Ridiculous. I mean, this is a time when um, um, science... Um, it, expertise where whether policy it be science backseat, policy yeah. in general whether it be health policy economic policy uh, you need the experts to step up and take the lead and for politicians to support them mm. and basically make it very very clear that as a political class we will follow the advice of experts even if we don't like that advice mm. um the fact is this is a time for expertise, um, not political expediency. Um, some countries around the world have done a very good job of that. I think we've done a pretty good job of that here by and large. Um, but in the United States in particular, that simply hasn't happened. Mm. And that's been incredibly um, frustrating and disappointing. Yeah, we the state of politi- – the, the scarcest beast in the animal kingdom right now is a political grown-up. Yeah. So how reliant is Australia on America um, compared to, say, 10, 15 years ago? Oh, less so. Uh, I mean, obviously, um, the bulk of our trade is with the Asia-Pacific uh, in general or with Asia in particular, but um, obviously China is the is the 800-pound gorilla there mm. and relations with China are obviously not good. But what's also interesting is that it's important to bear in mind that even though the measures that have been put in place against Australian uh, exports of whether it's beef or whether it's uh, barley or more recently wine um, – this is relatively targeted. It's almost like a shot across the bow. Uh, at the end of the day, China desperately needs iron ore to continue to drive its development. Brazil at the moment is not a reliable supplier of iron ore. And so while China, I think, China is being very strategic about this, um, it is prepared to send um, signals that it's not happy. But is China likely to turn around um, and put an embargo on Australian iron ore exports? I don't think that's the case. And if anything, even during these tensions and even during the pressure over barley and and beef and wine, um, our iron ore exports are doing incredibly well right now, which is actually helping to prop up the Australian economy at this point. And uh, the relationship China-US, will that just be on uh, rocky ground as long as the orange guys in office? It's not just the orange guy. Um, I think this is the other thing. Uh, I, The fact that China, the, the perception that China has behaved badly and that the United States needs to take China on, that has bipartisan support. Mm. Um, so the idea that um, a Biden presidency would somehow go easy on China, I don't buy that because the China that we're dealing with today is a far more aggressive beast than the China that uh, Biden dealt with when he was vice president under Obama, that um, we are seeing. And so I think those tensions are going to continue. You will see, I think, a smarter response. I think you'll see um, – I think one of the big failings of Trump's approach was take on China but do it alone. Um, so take on China but at the same time bag all your allies. Uh that's not a smart thing to do. Do you think you need to, you, the smarter thing to do would have been to actually work in concert with the Europeans and your Asia Pacific partners and present a united front to China? Uh, and but they haven't done that. Russia's been quiet in the last twenty minutes or so, haven't they? In the last twenty minutes, I mean, at the end of the day, um, uh, you know, someone described the other day, uh, Russia is a third-rate economy, really. Um, but it's a third-rate economy with nuclear weapons. Yeah. Um, and a leader that who clearly um, 
um, either has a point to prove and who wants to survive in the job mm. um, and will be ruthless in surviving in that job. Um, it, look, it's very, very hard to be optimistic about relations with Russia as long as Putin is there and Putin is there for the foreseeable future. Yeah. Um, now, P- Putin does not go quietly off and retire to his retirement home. Do you think um, if Biden got in, uh, it could be a rinse and repeat of George W. and uh, Dick running the show? Like... Dick Cheney? Oh, I don't like, think so. Do you think they've Biden's at a prop up like Bush was, or no? I don't think so. I think you know, yes, Biden is old, and yes, people bag him out because he misspeaks, etc. I do love the way that they pick on Biden for misspeaking when Trump unleashed can barely put together a coherent sentence <laughs> on right. a good day. It's really ridiculous. Yeah. Um, so I think Biden is being held to a far higher standard than the incumbent, which is, I think, quite yeah. ironic. Um, I think what you will see is certainly um, Biden will work. You'll see a more prominent role for the vice president. Mind you, Biden was also a very prominent vice president as well. Um, and I think Kamala Harris will also be a prominent vice president, just given the nature of the partnership and the fact that Biden is old. Yeah, and it's um, the, the rationale I've read and listened to with uh, Biden being put up is, you know, a, vump, a, a vote for Trump is a vote for Biden, which means the swingers who voted for Trump would probably be most likely to vote for Biden anyway, you know, old white guy. Well, I think the other thing is, um, the uh, rightly or wrongly, there was a bunch of people who sat out the US election last time, um, and they particularly those people in the key swing states who decided who decided that there was – they decided there was so little difference between the two candidates or they didn't like Hillary or they thought Trump wouldn't be as bad after all that they decided they would sit it out. That's the way you get Trump. This time around, um, if you can convince those people to say we're not going to make that mistake again and we do need to actually vote, um, then Trump loses. Yeah. But so much of it comes down to turnout. So much of it comes down to turnout in a handful of swing states. This is That's really where it's won or lost. Yeah. Um, yeah. Uh, we're going to finish with two final things. Sure. Uh, your view for what it's worth on Australian residential property at okay. the moment and the uh, current environment. And then we might bring it around home to talk about what should we be doing with our own money, albeit super or non-super. So oh, that's a good question. Now, I should say, I, the risk, I don't know whether this is self-serving or not, but I'm very, very bullish on four-bedroom semi-detached homes in Annandale in the inner west of Sydney. I think they'll do brilliantly. <laughs> But just quietly. Um, market, look, I think, look, to me, residential property in Australia is such a diverse beast. I don't think we can really generalise um, that on the one hand, um, look, we have ridiculously low interest rates, uh, which you, you, it's free it, money. It's free money. It's not quite free money, yeah. but very, very low interest rates would all other things being equal is very supportive for the property market. But the fact that we, our immigration rates are likely to be very, very low, um, almost in some cases non-existent for the next Mm. little while, and very, very low for some years means that key support for the property market um, that we've experienced over some years now isn't there. Um, the other thing is, so if you if you are invested in property or you're worried about the price of property in an area where um, immigration is a key driver or whether um, demand for a student accommodation is a key driver those areas of the market are going to be difficult. There's no doubt about that. Um, I think that's a problem. If you're in a part of the market where the great bulk of people who live there are still in work and are still earning money and have not been as badly affected by COVID, then those prices may actually hold up reasonably well. Mm. So, And you'll also get a lot of state variation. So clearly we're already seeing that. So we're seeing prices come off a bit in Melbourne. Airbnb, other states holiday properties maybe. Well, exactly. <laughs> so it, it's, it's very, very patchy. The key negative, though, if you want if you want to be really negative about um, the property market nationally, um, you need uh, so much depends on the labour market and depends on unemployment and depends on how quickly we can bring those people who have been forced out of work by necessity. And it's I hate saying that, but that's really what it's been about. How quickly you can bring them back and to ensure that the we don't end up with a sharp longer term rise in unemployment. Because mm-hmm. if unemployment stays higher or continues to, I don't know what the level is, but if you see unemployment nationally rise to a level where people are forced into distress selling of their property, that's when you get a much 
sharper and more widespread fall in property prices. Mm. Um, that'll vary state to state, I, I think, in reality. But um, the key thing is unemployment. Um, if unemployment stays high or keeps on rising and if it forces people to walk away from their house in a very widespread way, that's when you see potential serious who, damage to the property market. Who was market. saying – was it the NAB CEO or the – RBA I'm governor saying, saying no, no, saying get out while the going's good. Mm. I don't think the RBA governor would have said that, no. but I think some <laughs> people. But some people have made the comment um, that um, the I think the figure was something like fourteen percent of, of mm. loans where um, people have been on repayment holidays. Mm. Um, I think one of the bank CEOs might have made the point that look, maybe some of those people will ultimately be forced to sell their home. Mm. Now, look, it sounds very harsh, but that is the reality. Um, some of, at least some of those people are not going to be able to get their jobs back and may end up being forced to sell their property. Um, now, that's an awful situation, mm. um, but that's that tends to be what happens even during the recovery phase of a recession. So uh, I think we need to be realistic about this. It just also goes to show that we need to maintain a level of government support for some time, mm. I think. Ben asks, do you have any good tips for the spring racing carnival? No, no. I, it's funny. I, 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 I get a bit moment. emotional about spring racing because <laughs> my, my late father was right into the horses. Really? You know, he loved the, loved the nags. And um, every Melbourne Cup day, uh, if I would go to a function or something, or I just want to put a bet I often on, want to, I'd ring my dad and ask for his tips. And yeah, generally I do okay. We've, we've got to but, finish up. But I personally, I just don't get horse racing. Like, yeah. just don't get it. Look, it's not my thing. Um, I'll have a bit of a flutter on Cup Day and uh, remember my old man, but that's about it. Yeah. yeah. And let's finish. We're all investors. Yep. Uh, some of us might have some new money to put into an investment market. So we might have saved cash. We want to invest it. Or we're looking to review our superannuation investment strategy. Mm. While we actually can't give personal financial advice, uh, what are some of the things that we need to look out for with our own money? Oh, that's a really good question. And to me, the ideal investment strategy is one that you build, that uh, is a strategy that's built to suit your particular financial needs, your appetite for risk, your stage of life, your financial goals. Um, and that ideally, that strategy should be built with the help of professional advice. Absolutely. Um, with that caveat. Now, what it means is that the ideal portfolio is different for everybody. Um, we need to take as much, we need to take risk. We need to take enough risk so that we can generate the kind of returns that we need. But we also need to be careful. We don't want to be taking so much risk that we can't eat or sleep with the worry of it. Mm. And I often say and that's that different for everyone. It is true, different for everybody. And so I often say, look, if you are losing sleep because of something you're doing with money, mm. whether it's your super, whether it's your mortgage or your, your outside of super portfolio, if you're losing sleep with the worry of it, it means that you're less likely to stick to it anyway mm. and you've got the wrong strategy. You're yeah. taking too much risk. It's, you're, you're losing sleep. Your body is telling you you're taking too much risk. Or you've done something without understanding Correct. it. Um, and I often say, you know um, – at the bottom of the prospectus or the, the product disclosure statement, you know, Sun Super and every super fund, every provider puts a line that says past performance is no guide to future performance. Mm. We don't put it there for our own amusement. Mm. We put it there because it is bloody well true. Yeah. Yeah. Um, too many people still base investment decisions on past performance, which may or may not be a great idea. In fact, yeah. most of the time it's not a great idea. Um, making sure that um, – understand what kind of investor you are and where you um, need to take – other rules of thumb. Don't, don't pull all your eggs in one basket. Diversification is often described as the only free lunch in investing. This idea that, oh, it's okay, I'm diversified. I've got a house in Sydney and an apartment on the Central Coast. No, you're not. You've got yeah. two properties in New South Wales. That is not a diversified portfolio. Um, lots of eggs and lots of different baskets is what it's about. Um, caramel chocolate eggs, your thing, or are you just more just straight Punched. up chocolate? No, I'm a, a combination of caramel chocolate eggs and Turkish delight eggs. Turkish Love delight it. is my yeah. My okay, Easter literally. Um, if uh, uh, if there's a bag of Turkish delight eggs, they're growing and, legs uh, around Easter, <laughs> yeah. and um, the wife Good would luck. yell. The wife would yell at the kids saying, "Who's eating all the eggs?" And I would just sort of cower into the corner because it's generally um, on the. Um, we'll finish with this. Like, there's a lot of people who listen to the podcast now mm. who are Sun Super members now because of um, the support they've had with the show. What does Sun Super do for members if they need? Oh, it's a really good question, and. 
get on the phone. Please talk to us. Um, we have a team of financial advisors who can give um, give phone based advice to Sun Super members about you know what they should do with their super. Um, more than happy to talk. So I mentioned the phone number up front, but thirteen eleven eighty four. Um, please um, get on the phone and talk to us. Sometimes um, uh, if the guys are really really busy, um, they will call you back. Uh, may take a little while to call back, but they will absolutely call you back. Yeah. Um, and we can generally help most of our members um, over the phone. Um, I suppose the other thing uh, that's important is that um, where are you invested? Understand which portfolio you're invested in. And we find that with our default members, uh, we run a life cycle strategy. So, so you, we very, very gradually reduce your risk as you approach retirement. And that's been a good thing. What we've also found during COVID is that um, those members in our default strategy have been far less likely to make poor investment choices during the worst of COVID mm. than those members who weren't getting advice and who were trying to do their own thing without advice. Yeah, so please, if you're in doubt and you're a Sun Super member, pick please up the phone. Please give us a call. More than happy to the talk. front foot. Brian, it has been fantastic. Thank you so much for coming up. Thank Great you, pleasure. Brian. Thanks so much, guys. We'll do it again soon. Thanks, Sun Super. happy to help. Bye. All right, bye. We acknowledge the dark and young people, traditional custodians of the land on which our studio sits, and pay respect to their elders, past and present. We extend that respect to Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples who may listen to our podcast. My Millennial Money supports A21, a charity focused on abolishing slavery and human trafficking all over the world. Check out a21.org.au for more info. If you would like some other giving options, or if you're unsure about which charity you can support, head to thelifeyoucansave.org.au. If you're looking for a super fund that puts its members' interests above all else, choose a super performer, Sun Super. With low fees, strong investment returns, and great member services, Sun Super is Super Ratings 2020 Fund of the Year and has also been awarded by Money Magazine, Canstar, and Finder. Find out more at sunsuper.com.au forward slash M3. You can join Sun Super online in under five minutes. This podcast is for education and entertainment purposes. Any advice is general financial advice only, which does not take into account your objectives, financial situation, or needs. Because of that, you should consider if the advice is appropriate to you and your needs before acting on the information. If you do choose to buy a financial product, read the product disclosure statement and obtain appropriate financial advice tailored to your needs. Simo Interactive, Proprietary Limited, the publisher of the podcast, is an authorized representative of Money Sherpa, Proprietary Limited, which holds financial services license 451289. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.